I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You said Bitcoin? Yeah. Isn't it like online currency? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. How did you hear about it? It was all over the internet and the news. Hello, you're listening to Radio Motherboard. I'm Motherboard Managing Editor Adrian Jeffries, and this week we'll be talking about Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a digital currency that was invented by an anonymous programmer and released online in 2009. It's now been around and in use as both a currency and an investment, like gold, for almost six years. And even though it started out as a kind of, like, toy money for hardcore techies to play around with on the internet, by now, most people have at least heard of it. So, have you ever heard of Bitcoin? Yes. And what is it? I'm not really sure. (laughs) What's your best guess? I know it's a type of virtual currency. <laughs> have you have you ever heard of Bitcoin? No. B I T C O I N. No. Yeah, I hear. You have? Okay. What how did you hear about it? Um I think it's a newspaper. I read it in the newspaper. And what is it? It's a digital currency. As far as I'm aware. I don't really know anything about it. When did you first hear about it? Probably last year. Okay, have you guys heard of something called Bitcoin? Yeah. Yeah. Called what? Bitcoin. No. One of my friends actually had some illegal Bitcoins before he went to jail. (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) Yes. He gave his friends a hundred dollars to Radio Motherboard is brought to you by Casper. It's one perfect mattress made in the USA with free shipping, free returns, and 100 nights to try it in your own home. It's a radical new idea to actually sleep on a mattress to decide if you love it. Check it out at casper.com. You can use code VICE for $50 off any mattress. While you can't actually go to jail for having too many bitcoins, there are other ways to get in trouble. Charlie Shrem, who's now 25, he's a tech entrepreneur, started a company that made it easy to buy Bitcoin. He was also part owner of EVR, the first nightclub in New York to accept Bitcoin. I spoke with his girlfriend, Courtney. 
All right, my name is Courtney Marie Warner. Um, I'm originally from York, Pennsylvania, but have lived in New York for 13 years since the whole thing went down with Charlie. So that's when we moved. How do you usually explain to people what Bitcoin is? I say it's a virtual currency that acts as cash, but it's also money movement around the world. So for example, if you want to you know, send money to somebody where they don't have a banking system, but they have a cell phone, that you're able to transfer money over to that person without any fees. How did you hear about Bitcoin? I actually encountered Bitcoin because I was working at his nightclub, EVR, over on 39th Street. And um, we were the first nightclub slash bar to accept Bitcoin. So I was actually one of the first people to do the first transactions for Bitcoin because we were the only ones that accepted it at that time. And how did that work? How did you actually process transactions? We had an iPad. And um, and then the other the person that wanted to use it had an app on their phone. And then we matched the QR code. And that's how they the money would transfer to a, um, an address. And what did you think of all this Bitcoin stuff when Charlie first introduced you to it? I liked it from my perspective because... Um, working in the nightclub business or, you know, like in um, the restaurant industry, it was nice to see that using Bitcoin, you can't do chargebacks. So that money is instant. It's instantaneous money that comes out of the person's account and they can't come in, you know, tw- you know two weeks later and say, I never got this because we have proof that they actually did make that transaction. Charlie's company, BitInstant, started to take off, eventually getting investment from Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss, the twins of Facebook fame. Charlie was a public face for Bitcoin, giving speeches and hosting meetups in his Manhattan office. But in April of 2014, all that changed. Basically, we went on a family trip with my mom. He gave my mom a Christmas present to come to Amsterdam with us. So it was actually my mom and her best friend that came with us. And then his best friend from Austria and his girlfriend and me and him. So it was the six of us and we had an amazing time. And then on our way back, we took two different flights. My mom and her best friend took one flight home to York, Pennsylvania, where my mom's from. And then we took a separate plane back to New York. And as soon as we got off the plane, (laughs) sorry, Um, as soon as we got off the plane, we were, you know how the customs or whatever um, had their arms up and like kind of just flagging someone to come over and then they were like, we, they took us in another room and I didn't know what was going on. And um, basically, they were like, it was the DEA, the IRS, everybody just kind of surrounded us and said that he was under arrest and read him his rights. And I didn't know what was going on. They went through my stuff. They went through his stuff. And, and that's when pretty much our life just was flipped upside down. Charlie was charged with one count of conspiracy to commit money laundering, one count of failure to file a suspicious activity report, and one count of operating an unlicensed money transmitter. 
All of this together carried a maximum sentence of 25 years in prison. It all came down to one bit instant client, Robert Fiella, who was buying bitcoins from Charlie and then turning around and selling them to people who used them to buy drugs on the underground black market Silk Road. Charlie is now serving a two-year sentence in prison. So Bitcoin basically ruined your life and Charlie's life. Did that change how you feel about it? I still, I still feel very, very firmly believe in Bitcoin. And I think it's going to shoot through the roof. And it's still, you know, sticking around the 230, 40 mark. So, and Charlie says that's a good thing when it sticks around. And how has it been since he went to prison? Um, I just want to thank everybody that's been on in our corner and on our side through this whole thing. If he didn't have the Bitcoin community and me and my family supporting him, I don't know where he would be. And I just want to let everyone know that he's so grateful. And I'm so grateful for everything that everyone has done. Courtney, thank you so much for telling us your story. No problem, Adrian. Thanks for having me. Welcome to Radio Motherboard. I'm Adrian Jeffries, Managing Editor, and I'm here with researcher Eric Franco. Hello. And New York Times reporter Nathaniel Popper. Good to be here. And we are going to talk about digital gold. Um, so, Nathaniel, you wrote this book about Bitcoin, um, and I know there have been a bunch of books about Bitcoin, which listeners may have seen at the airport. Um, but they were all kind of, I thought, more geared toward people who wanted to make money off of Bitcoin, and they were kind of written too fast to be really comprehensive or, uh, in my opinion, much more useful than what you could get from the news. And this book is, it's really the whole arc of the history of Bitcoin till now. Thank you. That's certainly <laughs> what I tried to do. And certainly from the beginning in reporting about Bitcoin, I, I found that a lot of what was out there was sort of talking about the technology in very serious terms and sort of debating, does this matter? Does this not matter? And I found that the best way into this was to look at the people who are getting into this, using it, sort of leaving their old lives behind to, to chase this promise that, that Bitcoin seems to hold. And it was really that, the, the, the people, that, that fascinated me. And uh, they, provide, they provide a way into all that, that technical stuff. They, they, they are the ones who are kind of harnessing this in different ways in different places. But at the end of the day, this is really about people. What was your earliest memory with Bitcoin? Also, like, what was like the aha moment of like understanding it? I think it was in my mother's womb. There was a <laughs> dim memory from the past of a, of a kind of. Um, actually, my first memory is of somebody asking us, asking a couple of reporters why we hadn't written about it yet, and us debating how silly this was or how. Uh, how much nonsense this was. It, would, it had just been covered by some publications like The Verge and other places like that, that, um, that we didn't take it seriously. And um, we kind of thought it was some uh, uh, sort of online pet rock kind of thing. Um, and it was actually the Winklevi, the, the Winklevoss twins, um, 
who uh, we started talking to about their their massive holdings of Bitcoin. And uh, my first story in Bitcoin was actually about just how much they owned. And and I which was, it, which was at that point around $11 million worth of it. It was about 1% of all the outstanding Bitcoins they had amassed at that point. And crazy. I kind of thought it was going to be a one-off story, but this became the most read story and everybody was so into it. Um, and I think part of that was because of the twins, but but a, a big part of it was also because of this idea of a, a new kind of money that you know had come out of nowhere and was suddenly worth millions of dollars and most people hadn't even heard of it. So that's and where it began. So that was that that would have been like 2012. Uh, that was actually early 2013. 2013. Um, yeah, you can you can trace. Uh, you know, the the media interest really has moved in very close correlation with the price. Right. And that was during one particular run up when I think a lot of people sort of heard about it for the first time in March, April 2013. And I, I think this that specific story, I think, ran with the head. Never mind Facebook, Winklevoss twins rule in digital money. Is that it? That's it. I remember, I remember in my dorm reading that like in college. Actually. Yeah, I'm sure. So people in the Bitcoin community kind of labored in obscurity for a long time. It first came out in the beginning of 2011 or 2009. And then there were just years of, you know, any small victory, any little bit of press coverage, anything was really exciting to them. And I'm sure this was a big moment in the community to have the New York Times write about Bitcoin. Yeah. I mean, Adrian, you did, I mean, really, you did some of the best coverage in those years of obscurity where you were... I think sort of laying the groundwork, explaining what this was all about. Thank um, you. But it, it's certainly the case that up to that point, nobody that anybody knew had really attached their name to it. And I, I, I think for the times that was an issue. How do we understand this if we can't speak to somebody we know in a different context about this? It seemed that everybody were these sort of Bitcoiners who um, were, you know, were were nobodies and and. The Winklevoss twins were really in that first wave of people saying, "Okay, I'm I'm into this, and I get it, and I like it." And I think that some people in the Bitcoin community would probably rather have not had their names attached to it. They are right. they are very polarizing uh, figures in in the tech world. Um, but um, you know, I think I think Bitcoiners, such as they are, probably give them too little credit for for stepping out on a limb in the way that they did and sort of putting their reputation on the line, which is something. And and it was soon after that that um, a lot of bigger names started getting into it, started talking about it. It was a month later that the first sort of real venture capital investment in Bitcoin happened, a $5 million investment in Coinbase. And so that was really the start of a new phase for, for Bitcoin, I think. I'm curious about... Eric, you're kind of a Bitcoin nerd, if you don't mind my saying that. I wonder, how did you first hear about it? Um, that I think I've told you this before. It was literally, uh, just to kind of echo Nathaniel here, from your coverage at The Verge, I think. Oh, literally just my coverage. No, I didn't, I didn't remember that. I wasn't um, trying to toot my horn there. So, yeah, I mean, and just, I mean to like huge, you know, Bitcoin fans possibly, hopefully listening to this podcast, I mean, get I was in the same boat, like in probably 2013, 2012, really getting into it, which, of course, there could be many people listening here who 
that's that seems like an incredibly late date but that is kind of when you know the the press kind of really jumped in Mm -hmm. I started writing about it in 2011 and Gawker got there first so I was by no means the earliest um there was the story on Gawker about Silk Road and that's where I heard about it and I found that people I was talking to were more interested in Bitcoin than in Silk Road. Obviously, Silk Road was very interesting to a lot of people for a lot of reasons, but I was getting a lot of questions about Bitcoin too, which was a background piece of that story. And so I started looking into it so that I could answer questions that people were asking me. You know, what's what's interesting about that Silk Road story, and that was kind of the first uh, big spike um, that each one of these big spikes tended to come with a bunch of media attention and then a crash in price. But um, you suddenly had a new group of people who were interested. And that that Silk Road story is interesting because um, it wasn't a response to the rising price. It was a cause of the rising price. So that that Gawker story really, uh, really sort of changed the the, the scene, Adrian Chen's story. Um, there were there were a few earlier ones. Forbes published something, and actually Times blog had something. And then there was a famous slash dot story, which was hardly even a story, but mm-hmm. was when a lot of the first sort of hackers and programmers uh, learned about it back in 2010. Right. I think I remember that from the book. Everyone was all excited about getting on slash dot. Yeah, and 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 everybody was sort of staying up late and. And the the the, the uh, Bitcoin servers or the the forum servers crashed because it could only handle like a hundred people at a time. Um, uh, but uh, that that was actually when the the founder of Mount Gox, Jed McCaleb, first got into it, um, and a lot of the people who we we now associate with Bitcoin, if if you associate people with Bitcoin. Right. You mentioned like you were really focused on the people of Bitcoin. And I, I thought while reading, like, this seems like fun. It seems like really fun reporting. Like you were in a lot of rooms and parties and fancy dinners where people were transferring $100,000 in Bitcoin back and forth between each other just to demonstrate that you could do it. What was it like to be in the Bitcoin scene? I mean, just this, this process over the last year and change was certainly, I think, the most fun thing I've done as a journalist yet to to get to travel around and meet all these people. And they're generally very well-meaning people. I mean, there there are a lot of scammers in this world, um, and there have been a lot of scams and a lot of money lost, and I think that's a really important part of the Bitcoin story. But a lot of the people who were kind of working to bring this technology to the next level were well-intentioned. And they did have these sort of big ideas about what they were doing. And, and, and generally, they were up for debating them. And so it was just a lot of fun conversations with some, 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 some weight to it. Um, and I actually remember there's a, there's a funny comment that some kid on on the forums made this is back in like 2010 when that first slash dot article appeared and some kid appeared and 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 everybody was just talking about how how this was just making their brains go crazy and it was so so exciting to them and somebody said it's you know i have all these wacky ideas you know this was probably some um 
anarcho-capitalist guy who um, was cobbling together these different philosophies from different places. And he said, Bitcoin's so exciting because it gives you something real that you can actually talk about all of these ideas through. You know, frequently we have to talk about the matrix because we have to talk about this fictional circumstance in which these technologies are imagined. And that gives us a way to talk about it. But with Bitcoin, you have something that's in the world that's operating and that allows you to think about what it's like to have a system that's run by its users rather than by some central authority. And so I think that's that's kind of the, the germ of what get got a lot of people so excited. And you know, as a reporter getting to just sort of be in that conversation and watch it and sort of figure out what were the turning points? What did make this work? What was it that when it seemed like it was going to die, suddenly revived it? And oftentimes the answers were were unexpected or interesting or, you know, counter to popular opinion. But that was a lot of fun. There did seem to be this personality type of someone who's very technologically proficient and that ability gave them a lot of freedom like there are a lot of these people like Eric Voorhees and Roger Ver who kind of have had enough success to give themselves this like almost superhuman ability to travel freely and like go set up in Panama and like do whatever they want and I thought that was a really attractive part of the the Bitcoin story was these people who kind of live outside of the system already Right. It, you're you're right that it, there is a certain there is a certain personality type who has learned to code, has learned to basically create their world themselves, you know, has learned to communicate themselves. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. You know, they're using um, Linux system and they're, you know, they're, they're not using anything that that any corporation gave to them, although frequently they are in ways that they don't want to acknowledge. But but there um, there are a lot of these kids who grew up and just felt like, OK, I'm making my own world. Why am I still bound by all of these silly vestiges of of the old world? Why? Why am I still bound by this? paper the silly paper money that's like disintegrating in my hands and why is it that when i cross an international border i have to give somebody a little book that they stamp things in and i think that you know learning learning that technology having that having that power made a lot of these things seem silly and bitcoin i think spoke to a lot of these people it it made it feel like okay here is a way to to move past that old world and uh and I think that really, that really, that was another thing that really excited a lot of people. I, I have a quick question about your process for writing this book. Um, in the particularly volatile moments in Bitcoin's history, which, I mean, it seems like a long time ago, but really, really isn't. I mean, how, how does one write a book on something that's changing literally every week, at certain points in its history, at least? With a lot of 
high blood pressure and anxiety that your book is going to be irrelevant, first of all. Um, but second of all, I set out to write a kind of history. You know, I wrote, I was writing about the story of this. And when I sold the book, I said to them, look, this may not exist in a year, but this story still matters. Um, and I still hold to that. I mean, this, this story really, really, um, illustrated this moment in time when all these people were drawn to this idea. Um, I, I think if Bitcoin had stopped existing, uh, that may have been all well and good, but people still wouldn't have cared about my book. So I'm lucky that it does still exist. Um, and really, as the year went on, and, and really when I began it, it began when I had a sense, a, a certain confidence that that this was going to survive in some sense, that there was some part of this that was going to matter. There were too many people working on it, too many people at big institutions thinking about it to not influence the way money was going to work moving forward. Um, and even if Bitcoin didn't exist. And, and frankly, I, I still think that is the case. And it, it may even be more the case now that the things that people are working on are not going to be using the currency per se, are not going to be using it in the sort of easy way we think about using a digital currency, but might be using the bones of it to build something else. Um, but um, there was certainly a lot of uh, nervous days when the price was crashing, and I was worried that this was all just going to be irrelevant. Do you own any Bitcoin? You know, we we made a decision at the paper early on that owning this was essentially like owning a stock that you cover, um, and that you know we don't we don't own stocks that we cover because you can influence the price, and you don't want to have that um, that that it's hanging over you. Um, and and it's and it's the case that news coverage, probably even more so than with stocks, Definitely. moves the price of Bitcoin. Um, so I think that was probably a good decision. I. I w got a special dispensation to own enough of it to sort of play with it. Right. And you you frankly don't need to own very much of it because it can be subdivided so finely, you know, just to understand how the different services work and understand right. what it looks like when it's on your phone, when it's on your computer, how it moves, what it looks like when it moves. Yeah, like putting in a dollar into one of the ATM machines and having right. you print out your Bitcoin. Your little QR code. Right. Do What's... you own any Bitcoin, Eric? No. Some people don't like this question. I, uh, I, I don't mind the question, but no, I don't. I did uh, before I worked for Motherboard, and, uh, but I don't have any now. Um, Some people do get really prickly about this question, though, like, uh, and they'll become combative and say, like, you wouldn't ask someone how much money they had in their bank account. Uh, and that just reminded me of how I did sometimes run into this um like sense of privacy in the Bitcoin community because it does attract that personality. And I wonder when you bumped into that as opposed to having people open all their doors because New York Times reporter covering Bitcoin were so excited. Did you ever, like, everything was going great and then all of a sudden people were, like, people shut, shut down? down? You know, it's a good question. And it's kind of surprising when I think about it how infrequently... I encountered that sense of privacy. I mean, I think I think there were certain people who just didn't don't talk about it and and didn't talk about it with me. And there are probably some important characters or some people with very large holdings of bitcoins who I have no, you know, don't know anything about and we don't know anything about. 
Although I think that's that's harder than you'd think it is uh, to to sort of really remain private in this community, just because in order to secure large amounts of bitcoins, you kind of have to buy them from other people who own large amounts of bitcoins. It's it's you could do it on these exchanges, but then the exchanges know about you. So in any case, um, there were surprisingly few people, although you know there were. Um, there were people who sort of began with hesitation and I'd like to think that as they got a sense of what I was doing and that I was interested in more than just the sort of tawdry aspects of this as I was interested really in explaining why this mattered, why it was interesting, uh, people certainly opened up and, you know, over the course of the year, people who began hesitant certainly uh, really, really showed their cards, you know, shared emails, shared when they bought, how much they bought, um, and that uh, really sort of illuminated things. One of the people who kind of has more of that private attitude was Mark Carpellis, the Mt. Gox guy, and he, I think, it seems like he actually opened up a lot to you. I was wondering if you could talk about how you got in touch with him. Yeah, well... He's he's an unpredictable character, um, which is a big part of his undoing, I think. But, you know, this is the guy who essentially bought Mt. Gox for nothing from Jed McKayla back in 2011 and ran it more or less by himself until it exploded with like half a billion dollars worth of Bitcoins in it. Um, and I had been reaching out to him before Mt. Gox was imploding and his reputation, even with the people who did the most business with, with him, such as Charlie Shrem, was that you could be, you know, you could have millions of dollars with him and trying to get in touch with him to figure out what was going on with it. And he just wouldn't, he wouldn't email you email. back. And he didn't, he didn't get on the phone. He would only, you could only communicate with him on IRC. And so I, I sort of went in knowing this. Um, and I booked a flight to Tokyo, basically. Fortunately, Roger Ver, who's another big character, also happened to live in Tokyo, strangely like four blocks from Mark Carpellis's offices, almost totally randomly. Um, and so I knew that at least I would get to talk to Roger Ver. And Mark had at various points indicated a willingness to talk to me, but then he would just stop responding. And I got to Tokyo and I hadn't heard from him in a couple of days. And I emailed him every day when I was in Tokyo. And for the first three days, he didn't respond to me. And I was getting kind of worried that I was going to lose my opportunity. And then one, one, one evening, he basically just out of nowhere, and I got an email that said, okay, come to the office tomorrow at 930. And I, so I showed up, I figured maybe he'd spend a half an hour with me talking and I had to have all my questions, the big questions ready. Um, but instead he had an empty office, um, because all of his employees had, uh, basically left, been fired. And so he still had these Mt. Gox offices and he showed me up to his empty office and we just sat there the whole day and just went through everything. And he had his laptop there so that he could show me the emails from this happening and that happening. And, you know, he walked me through those final days at Mt. Gox um, and frankly, a lot of it was not usable because I still don't 
know whether I can trust uh, Mark Carpellis. I think there's a lot of reasons not to. And so unless it was documented, it's kind of hard to rely on that. But it was fascinating to hear his telling of what happened. Um, uh, and I still think that actually more so than Silk Row, we don't really know what went on at Mount Gox. I mean, we know the sort of big picture, but there are a lot more missing details than there are for the Silk Road where we kind of have all the servers now and we know the, the the big players and all of that. Yeah, it seems like the only thing that's clear is that the money is gone. Or the money was gone. Yeah. I mean, somebody's got it. Or I, I suppose, actually, a, a, a theory I heard frequently was that he just lost the private keys and so that <laughs> money is literally gone um yeah. that's that would be that that's yeah would kind of be the definition of gone um but i think there's enough reason now to think that that it was kind of uh ferreted away by somebody um and one of one of the interesting stories mark told me was i i just asked him why it was that he never went to any Bitcoin event ever. I mean, mm -hmm. he was running the largest Bitcoin company in the world and nobody ever met him. Nobody saw him. And he said that the reason he didn't go, um, he didn't travel was because Taban, his cat, needed shots for a sickness that um, required shots every day. And I said, okay, but I, I said, why couldn't you just let somebody else give him the shots? And he said, no, 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 I'm the only person who knew how to give him the shots. And frankly, that might be the best window into Mark Carpellis' soul. He, A, didn't know how to prioritize. He didn't mm -hmm. realize that his, his cat's shots might be less important than something else. But also his total unwillingness to trust anybody else. Um, you know, he, he ran Mt. Gox essentially by himself until the end. And so he didn't have help. He didn't have other people telling him, you know, you're, you're not doing this the right way. He didn't trust anybody else. And um, I think, you know, beyond whatever, ha what happened to those coins, that was the problem there was that, you know, one person doing this themselves. And, you know, when you think about it, that was really the problem that Bitcoin was designed to overcome. You didn't want to rely on individual people with all their frailties. You wanted to rely on a community that could check itself and and it's interesting that mount gox is almost it went wrong almost because it was the opposite of of what bitcoin was supposed to be right so the last thing i wanted to ask you about was uh there was an article on fusion about how bitcoin is dominated by men i think they cited a study that says 96 percent of the people involved with bitcoin are men which is pretty staggering and it definitely shows in the book there are, it's i think there are no women look i think it's a, a fascinating question I, I i've gotten a lot of flack after that story saying that i didn't try hard enough to find the women because there are women mm -hmm. um i mean look my my purpose in telling the story was to sort of figure out what were the key turning points and who were the players. And it wasn't about... And it was dudes. Figuring out... Right. It, everybody who was involved, this wasn't an encyclopedic effort. It was to figure out those those moments. And it was certainly dudes. I think I think there are now some, some women... I mean, I'm particularly impressed by this company, BitPace in Africa, that's run by a woman named Elizabeth Rossiello, who seems really great. And she's like created this thing out of her vision. Um, but um, I think the interesting question to ask is, 
why when this wasn't a in-person community. I mean, now it's something where if you go to a Bitcoin meetup, it is a lot of guys and I can see how that would be off-putting. But initially, this was just some people at their computers, you know, just screen names. And why why is it that at that point when when you you know, there wasn't the physical intimidation or the phys- any of that, why at that point was it all men? And I think that's that's, you know, kind of the basic question that Bitcoin faces. It's also a basic question that the tech community faces. Why is it that dudes are drawn to programming in a way that women aren't? And obviously there's a lot of good conversation about that going on and a lot of thoughts on how to change that. But I think, I, I don't know that that's any more of an issue for Bitcoin than it is for a lot of the rest of the tech community. Um, and certainly the kind of endemic issues there um, they they exist and i think there's good thoughts on how to change it but it's certainly not changing all that fast i was wondering you know when do you decide that this book is done do you feel like the story of big obviously it's not over but is it kind of close to over Uh, (laughs) um um I, i i hate to say this but this is this is the question in which I probably have the least interesting to stuff to say or the least inform. you know. Tell us this the is, future. Right. This is, th- th- I know as much as probably everybody listening to this knows on this front. I mean, I think, first of all, Bitcoin is still a very young technology. And, and in fact, like a person selling, you know, one chunk of Bitcoin, you know, a person selling $100,000 worth of Bitcoin can definitely move the price of Bitcoin, you know, five or $10. And that's not like a mature financial market. So this is still very young. I still think, you know, if one of these big Bitcoin companies that's now gotten all this venture funding, if if one of them goes down, you know, Coinbase or something, um, this is still about confidence and confidence could still be entirely killed in this uh, in this technology. So um, I, I think that it, even if it's killed, some parts of it will, would be resurrected just because people are so fascinated again by the sort of infrastructure of Bitcoin and, and what it can do that previous technology couldn't do. Um, uh, I mean, I think that there's probably going to be more sort of speculative price cycles if Bitcoin continues and and it's going to go up and then it's going to crash and people are going to get into it. Um, I mean, I think a lot of uh, this may be really boring and, and institutional of me to think this, but I think that probably what Wall Street is doing with it, you know, the, these efforts to use it to facilitate clearing and settlement and these really boring things that involve really large amounts of money um, is probably the thing that might move it the most in some direction or another. Um, And so I think that's worth watching. And I I think as to the story of Bitcoin, I, 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 this, my book more or less ends in the summer of 2014. And Frankly, I, I started, I, I wasn't planning that. I thought it might go into 2015. But to, to be frank, nothing much has happened since 2015. Like all of the themes that were in place in 2015, and a lot of that is just this divide between the early community and then all these institutional people who are interested in it. That divide existed at that point, And the first people, I mean, at that point, 
Goldman Sachs was already interested. JP Morgan was already interested. They've just come out, but they were already interested in that point, and that's in the book. And now it's just kind of all of these different players trying to do things. And um, it's a little bit less interesting to me in that sense, just because it's so disparate and far flung, and it's hard for any one of them to have the same impact. I mean, for those first six years or whatever, there were really there was really this handful of people that was really driving a lot of what was happening. And if you wanted to understand the price moves, you needed to understand, you know, 10, 15 people. And uh, that's part of what made this book so satisfying to write. And uh, people have asked me, you know, are you going to write the the sequel? And so far, I mean, the story of the last year just you know, there's crazy shit going on. There's interesting people still. A lot of those old people are still very involved, but it's kind of gotten a little bit more boring. And, uh, and you know, people say that's a good thing. I'm Gavin Andreessen early on famously said, um, you know, tweeted yesterday. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> <laughs> this was all right. So this was partly just to get people to respond. But I, I said I was kind of bored of Bitcoin on Twitter. Um, because yeah, it has like stabilized. It's not as much. Like for a while, knew- it was a it was really a roller coaster. It was like every week there was some new crazy thing that right was going on. If you it. know, if you understand the dynamics a year ago, you'll kind of understand the dynamics now. Like you're not, it's not changing the way you think about what is possible here. Like all the things that people are t- trying out right now are things that they said they were going to try out a year and a half ago and even maybe further back. And now it's just kind of a matter of whether those experiments work. So should we buy Bitcoin? Mm, yeah, <laughs> no, yes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for thank having you. me. It's the Bitcoin story is far from over and we'll have to do another podcast if it ever is. We have no predictions on where Bitcoin will go next. And remember, this show is not investment advice. But it's certainly been fun to watch it grow up so far. That's Radio Motherboard. Thank you for listening. What about you, sir? Bitcoin? Oh, yes. Sure. A couple of years ago. Uh, virtual money. Um, what else do you know about it? It was very expensive and dropped a lot about a couple months ago. No, not a couple. A year ago. Did you buy any? No. Why not?